all of you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. We mentioned that tonight I'd be introducing a mini-series on a particular theme in the Scripture. And I want us to start here in Ephesians to get us to that theme and remind us of, it, uh, of the challenge that we receive to uh, a church that desires to honor God. And the book of Ephesians, more than any other book in our Bible, does lay out the ideals for a New Testament church. We spend a great deal of time here in our Philosophy of Ministry series because this book sets out the ultimate destination for a church and then some of the reference points for conduct that gets there. And I just want to have you look in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that the book starts by talking about the activity of a certain member of the Trinity. Notice verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So this book starts by talking about what God the Father is doing. He's the one that is blessing us. But it is very clear right away that what God is doing in this age, he is doing by Christ. You can see that right away in verse number 3. But the Father has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, he hath chosen us in him. Verse number 5, he has predestinated us in the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. In verse number 6, we have to the praise of his glory wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved in whom we have redemption and so on. What God is doing, he is doing by Christ. But he is also doing what he's doing by Christ through the particular institution of the church. And that is because, as verse number 22 says, God has put, the Father has put all things under the Son's feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church, which is the body of Christ, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So what God is doing, he's doing by Christ, but he's doing through the body that he prepared for Christ and, and gave Christ to be the head over, and that is the church. And I know we're jumping around trying to catch these threads, but there is one repeatedly stated ultimate purpose for what God is doing by Christ through the church. Again, back in verse number 6 in the opening phrase, he is doing it to the praise of the glory of his grace. And that isn't just a single statement, though it's certainly profound in its own. But look at verse number 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And then if you come to verse number 14, we see it again, which is the earnest of our inheritance and the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And so he says it three times here in this first chapter that what he's doing by Christ through the church, he's doing for the praising of his own glory, for drawing attention to uh, his unique excellence, to exhibit it, to draw attention to it. And again, we know that we aren't making too much of these kind of isolated statements and, and we're doing the threading them together. 
Because after multiple uh, themes develop throughout these first three chapters, when he comes to the end and he wraps up uh, in, a, in a final statement these first three chapters, I want you to come right to the end of chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Notice now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen. You see those same four themes, they're in a little different order there. But unto God the Father be glory through the church, by Christ Jesus, this is his ultimate destination for each and every church. <clears throat> that we ultimately be a lens through which people can look and see a magnificent God, stand in awe of him, and want to give their life to him. But with that ideal laid out, chapter 4 and verse 1 begins to challenge us about our conduct. Notice chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And when we get here to vocation, don't disconnect from what's just been under discussion. This is talking about our calling. That calling is what's been repeated throughout those three chapters. Our calling corporately as a church is to walk or to conduct ourselves in such a way that God's glory is seen and known and praised. Then there's several reference points for our conduct over these last three chapters. The first one is in verse number two. With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. That one another and how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. That's the first point of reference for conduct that glorifies God. But we have a second one in verse number 17. Notice in verse 17, Miss I say therefore and testify in the Lord that he henceforth walk, you can see that challenge again to our conduct, but in this case, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind and so on. The, the second point of reference for conduct that glorifies God is this ungodly world. And the way this ungodly world conducts themselves, the way this ungodly world expresses their ungodliness. And we know that, that, that this walk not as other Gentiles is not an ethnic statement in this case, but a reference to people that don't know God, because that very next phrase says, in the vanity of their mind, verse 18, as you look there, they have their understanding darkened, they're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them and so on. As a church, if our conduct is going to be to the glory of God, then it's going to be conduct that is distinctively different from the ungodliness of a culture of people who don't know God. Now that works itself out multiple ways continuing right through the end of chapter 4 all the way into the middle of chapter number 5. <clears throat> and uh, the reality is that when you start to talk about conduct that is in contrast to the lifestyles of the ungodly, it really includes every realm of our lifestyle. And 
if there is any particular way that the unregenerate express their ungodliness more than any other, it is in this matter of our music. There's nothing that is quite so personal as my music. There's nothing that is so much an identity of me as the choices I make in music. Which is why there's hardly a a day goes by that any of us today aren't listening to some kind of music, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. It's the way the inner man and the values and... and, uh, and all that, that, that we appreciate, and, and our thoughts, and our passions. It's the way that our inner man expresses itself. And certainly it is the way that the ungodly express themselves. And in this arena of, of conduct that is in contrast to the world, one of the particular marks of our church is the concern that we give in particular to discernment about music. And I don't mean that there are no other churches that are concerned about that at all. But, but I think you know that very many in our day are saying things like, let's not worry about the style of our music. <clears throat> let's not worry about the sound of our music. Let's not worry about all the accessories and the, the aura and the context of our music. <clears throat> let's, just, let's, just work out, let's just focus on the object of our worship. Okay? <clears throat> that is not the mindset of this assembly. We give a great deal of attention to wrestling with musical style, both for our worship and in reference as well to our personal listening habits. And so, Lord willing, we're going to spend a couple of weeks exploring together scriptural arguments that compel us to practice, at least attempt to practice as best as we know how, to practice discernment in music. And I want to give tonight just some real basic introductions to why we would practice discernment about music and then, Lord willing, pursue some texts over the next couple of weeks that we'll settle into a little bit more. But one of the reasons, right from the start, to practice discernment about music is because both God and the devil are musical beings. That very reality calls, calls for practicing discernment. You don't need to turn to this passage now, but if you're taking notes, you can jot down Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. But that text says, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Do you know that God sings? One of the ways God expresses his own joy is singing. And the capacity of, of enjoying and appreciating any of the arts is part of being created in God's own image. The, the arts are expressions of beauty and imagination that move emotions without words. Music, drawing, sculpture, and so on. All of these arts move us without even the communication of words. 
At the end of Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he had made in creation. And his response, and even says, and he said, behold, it was very good. It's as if God, when he paused to reflect on all of it, took a special delight in his own creative handiwork. And that capacity to delight in beauty and design, to delight in sights and sounds, all of that is a reflection of the image of God in man. But the Bible also tells us in Ezekiel chapter 28, when it's describing the devil's beauty, it says that about the devil, tabrets and pipes were prepared in him in the day in which he was created. He was the chief of the angels. The angels are uh, described on multiple occasions as singing. And, and the devil, as he does with any other part of God's creation, would seek to pervert and, and twist music and destroy what God intended to be a blessing to man. That's why there is the battleground that there is with music. And brethren, for anybody to just kind of put their head in the sand about, about the battle, try to act like there really is a battle, or there shouldn't be a battle, is to actually not take seriously the fact that God and the devil are both musical beings. And God would attempt to, again, the devil would attempt to twist and pervert all that God has made, even this arena. And so we need to practice discernment regarding music. I do want to have you turn to a second passage and a second reason for practicing discernment in music. 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 16. A second reason for practicing discernment is because music has an impact on the whole man. Music has an impact on the whole man. And we're going to see the kind of impact that music had on King Saul. And Saul was having a mental, emotional breakdown. Uh, Psychologists would have a great time uh, with Saul in this passage and trying to sort out and analyze what's going on. And with that in mind, some of his servants suggesting that one of the things that could perhaps be a help to their troubled king is some music that was played skillfully. And they sought out somebody who could come and could minister to the king and just give it a chance, see what music could do to impact the health, mental, emotional, even spiritual health of, of this king. And one of the phrases that has stuck with me over the years communicates what, what multiple studies have proven. I first heard it uh, by a professor at the University of Indiana. And the theme of his extended uh, session was order in music promotes harmony in life. Order in music promotes harmony in life. That was his thesis and he supported it again and again throughout, a, I think, an hour and a half presentation that I heard. And when we look at King Saul and, and David's playing, notice in verse number 23, 
the, the arenas that are kind of br- broken down and parts of Saul's life and the impact that the music had. It came to pass in verse 23, when the evil sphere from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And Bible students note that this first phrase, Saul was refreshed, is talking about, in this case, musical instrumentation's effect upon him physically. The music had a refreshing physical impact upon Saul. And again, you know that multiple fields of of health and sociological authorities confirm what, what every human being knows, and that is that music can put the entire body into a state of alarm. Or music can soothe and calm. <clears throat> music can stimulate adrenaline. I absolutely loved in, in high school and then into college when we were playing basketball, and, and where we were playing my high school Enough of us were in the band that when we were playing basketball, we really couldn't have the pet band. So I love to go to away games where they had a full pet band <clears throat> because I could be, I, when I could jump up and barely get a hold of the rim in those days <clears throat> without music. But when the pet band was playing, I'd go to warm up and finger roll. And the first time it blew my mind, I went to finger roll and I hit the rim below my wrist. <clears throat> we all know, Right. And some of you go to lift weights or whatever it may be, and you try to find the music that gets that adrenaline going. The fact is, music can release chemicals into the bloodstream that affect various organs. That is why certain styles of music can, can become an addiction, like a drug that gives people a kick. The effect on Saul was positive, and it's very possible for music, of course, to have a therapeutic effect on the body. But it's also possible for music to work against natural health. Much more can be said about that, but music impacts the body. And secondly, notice that the music also affected at least to, at least temporarily some healing of his mental and emotional state. Saul was refreshed, and the second phrase was made well, referring to that mental and emotional state of him. Again, as as we've already noted, this seems to be a a special feature of music, that it engages and it reflects the emotions of man. Job 30 and verse 31 says, My heart also is turned to mourning, and my flute into the voice of them that weep. I've said to flute choirs in the past, I don't know, I was in a previous ministry where we had a flute choir, and periodically the flute choir, the flute ensemble, would play, I sing the mighty power of God. And I finally went to them, I said, who keeps deciding for flutes to sing the mighty power of God? I mean, that's, that ought to be for trombones, like we heard tonight, right? <clears throat> There's nothing mighty powerful about flute playing. Uh, but he says, my, my flute is turned into the voice of them that weep. 
Isaiah 16 and verse 11, wherefore my heart shall sound like an harp for Moab. Jeremiah 48 and verse 36, therefore my heart shall sound for Moab like pipes and my heart shall sound like pipes for the men of Kiris. And you can just see, and I've just read those without you looking at them, but, but certain musical sounds are compared to mourning, to wailing, to lamentation, or to rejoicing. Scripture clearly connects music and emotion even with individual instrumental sounds. And in the case of Saul, the music that David played not only had a refreshing impact on him physically and, and this stabilizing impact on him mentally, emotionally, but the last phrase of verse 23 says, And the evil spirit departed from him. And we really don't even know how to explain all that and, and, and what to make of it other than in this case, and again, at least this time, it, it had the spiritual effect of, of driving a demonic spirit away from oppressing him. It impacted his, his spiritual state at some level. What we know we have in the New Testament is more indication of, of the spirituality of music when, when it speaks of teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and what kind of songs? Spiritual songs. And, and rather, unless somebody say, but I'm, how do you know what, what a spiritual song is? What is it that defines it? And I know we could spend much more time on this. But we have a passage like Galatians chapter 5 <clears throat> that points to contrast between the influence of the Spirit and the influence of the flesh. Galatians 5 and verse 19, you know it. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. And he says, of which I've told you before, and I tell you in time, I'll tell you again, the day which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Brethren, there is music that is actually designed to promote and encourage in the bars, in the dance halls, in the seances, in the orgies, all of these things. There's music that's designed to promote, support, influence, adultery, fornication, uncleanness. It goes with it. And there's music that is designed to promote decency and orderliness and even good-natured fun and discipline of the mind and body. There, there is music that stimulates these movements of the flesh and music that stimulates these things that are even qualities of the Spirit. There's a difference in the impact of music, and, and often unbelievers in our day are more honest about what their music communicates than believers are. 
That's sad. But the fact is, rock musicians are quick to admit that their, their music communicates messages of rebellion and uncommitted, unbridled sexuality. And if you've been around for any length of time, you know that I often try to avoid even the most provocative quotes or expressions and uses of, uh, of certain vocabulary. But, brethren, there are times for us to actually just have some things hit us and stir us and shake us a little. But John Perlis, who is a music critic, said heavy metal's main subject matter is simple and virtually universal. It celebrates teenagers' newfound freedom of rebellion and sexuality. Debbie Harry, who is the lead singer of the Blondie, said, I've always thought that the main ingredients in rock are sex, really good stage shows, really sassy music, sex and sass. I think that's where it's really at. John Oates of Hall and Oates says rock and roll is 99% sex. Frank Zappa, rock music is sex. The big beat matches the body's rhythms. Jan Berry of Jan and Dean, the throbbing beat of rock and roll provides a vital sexual release for its adolescent audience. Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys, our music is and always has been fueled by a strong sexual undertow. Pop music is partially about sex. The two things can't be divorced. Stephen Halpern has an earned Ph.D. in music psychology. He lectures and writes on healing the mind, body, and soul through music. And, and honestly, you can go look him up. Much of his work would be connected to New Age concepts, yoga, and that kind of stuff. Now, I'm just saying this isn't a fundamental Baptist, you know, old-time religion guy. Okay? Here's what he has to say about Western music. He says, words are incidental at best, or monotonous and moronic as usual. But the point is, they don't matter What you dance to is the beat, the bass and drums. And with this mix and volume, not only is the beat sensed, but literally felt as this aspect of rhythm section takes precedence over melody and harmony. Many have stated that nearly all pop music in our culture, Western culture, moves the body to various expressions of sensuality. William Kirkpatrick is a professor of education at Boston College. And he wrote, rock confirms their right to have strong sensual emotions. The message is, your feelings are sacred. And nothing is set before them. This is the essence of what rock is all about. Rock cannot be made respectable. The music will simply subvert the words. No matter how many reforms are attempted, rock will always gravitate in the, in the direction of violence and uncommitted lust. Garth Brooks, a country star in a Barbara Walters special, was asked, how do you describe what you do? I've seen the clip. And when she asked him, how do you describe what you do, he looked at her and he said, it's sex. And then he went on to elaborate. Brethren, what, what I'm communicating is that there is a moral difference There is a moral difference in music that makes your foot tap. And that which makes the hips swing. And there is no denial that music affects humans of all ages and all cultures. 
and reflects the whole and, 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 and impacts the whole person. A third reason to practice discernment about music is the role that God intends for it to have in corporate worship. Would you skip forward to um, 1 Chronicles chapter 15? God and the devil are musical beings. Music impacts the whole person. And it has a role, God, a God-intended role for corporate worship and a significant role. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, David has brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and he's erected the tabernacle there and instituting now a whole new stage of, of corporate worship. And we're just going to touch down a couple statements to get a little feel. Look at verse number 16. David spake to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers and with instruments of music, psalteries and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. And verse number 22 mentions a particular leader, chief of the Levites, for song. He was to be the chief. He instructed about the song because he was what? Okay, it's important to not just do it, but to do it skillfully. Go over to chapter 23, and we, we get some indication about the size of all this. Chapter 23 and verse number 5 <laughs> says, Moreover, 4,000 were porters, and look at this count. 4,000 praise the Lord. With the instruments which I made, said David to praise therewith. Look over at chapter 25 and verse number 1. It says, Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun. Who should, and this is interesting, who should do what with harps and psalteries and cymbals? Who should prophesy? Okay, all of these instruments and all of these singers, all of this together was to be part of the proclamation element of the truth as they gathered for worship. And I'm going to have a skip all the way over to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. We're intentionally just heading some peak statements here to draw out some things for us. But look at verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Heman, of Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, and having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests Sounding with trumpets, 120 trumpets by themselves. And verse 13, it came to pass, even as the trumpeters and the singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, 
for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. That then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. And here all of this is, is completely intersected with the singers and the strings and the percussion and the brass and all joining to praise God. Certainly is a significant component of Old Testament corporate worship. I do want to have you go over to Ephesians. We started earlier in this book. We come to Ephesians chapter 5. There's going to be another reference point for conduct that glorifies God. And that reference point is the Spirit of God and a yielded relationship to His influence. And verse number 19 points to one of the marks of the influence of the Spirit. And I want you to see this. Speaking to yourselves. And I had us turn there. I know some of you have your your uh, Bible on an electronic device, and maybe you can make a note, okay? <clears throat> Others of you have your hard copy, and the reason I had us come here instead of just my saying it, though you know it, is because I would really encourage you to note that the yourselves there is a plural. It's intending to communicate something that is corporate, Ephesians 5 and verse 19, one of the marks of the influence of the Spirit is a speaking to yourselves corporately. A corporate body communicating to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We have another participle here. It, has, it still has an impact as well. On us privately, there's in addition to that, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. <clears throat> but music is one of the marks of the influence of the Spirit, both privately in my own heart, but also corporately. You can tell when one of the you can tell when somebody's under the influence of the Spirit of God <clears throat> when they like to gather together with the people of God and corporately sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Bare text on a page, words without dynamics and tone and feeling and imagination and personality can't convey the ideals of reverence and submission and trust and adoration and praise and thankfulness and love and devotion like poetry and music can. And God wants all of those traits to flow from the heart of His people to Him, even in corporate worship. We're to practice discernment about music because of the role God intends for it to have in corporate worship. And then a fourth tonight and a last one. A reason for practicing discernment in music. I want to have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And the fourth reason that we'll look at tonight is because music is a form of communication. 
whose messages must be evaluated. Music is a form of communication whose messages must be evaluated. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think many of you know the backdrop started all the way back in chapter 12. There's been the exaltation and abuse of tongue speaking in the church. And as he gets here to early part of chapter 14, the, the proposition that he's stating and then he supports is that one mark of the Spirit uh, influencing and empowering ministry is the communication can edify because it's understood. If any form of communication in any setting isn't understood, it can't profit, it can't edify. And in verses 7 and 8, now here in chapter 14, one of the illustrations Paul uses to support that concept is music. Notice verse 7, And even things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds. How shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? And in the flow of the, of the argument, one principle that we can extract here is that Paul did regard music as a form of communication. At the end of verse number 8, the, the sound of the trumpet, and end of verse, uh, I'm sorry, the end of verse 7, end of verse number 8, the, the sound of the trumpet specifically is a form of communication that can help a soldier prepare for battle. So music is a form of communication. I secondly just have us note that instrumental music communicates messages even apart from lyrics. Okay, because there is no vocal anything in this illustration. The only thing here are wind instruments and stringed instruments, and then specifically a trumpet. And if you look at that expression back in verse 7, <clears throat> without life giving sound, that is actually the translation of one word, and the word is literally no soul. No life. Okay, so here's an instrument. The instrument doesn't have a soul. <clears throat> the, instrument, the instrument itself has no life in it. Okay, that instrument is truly amoral. So sometimes people think they've, they've settled the whole thing when they draw attention to a fact that the instrument's amoral. Okay, here's the guitar. Is this a righteous guitar or an evil guitar? <clears throat> and you can't answer it. Aha! No, Paul says, look... The thing has no soul, no life in it. But when that instrument plays music, that music communicates meaningful messages. It's interesting that the same word that is, that is translated in verse 8, sound, in verses 10 and 11 is actually translated voice. And I can't walk us through that, but that's, that's actually talking about the need to learn languages. If you speak in a language I don't know, you could be one of the most intelligent people on the face of the earth, and to me it's going to sound like baby talk, babble. <clears throat> if we don't know each other's language, it can't edify. But when he's making that point, he uses about musical instrumentation the same word that he uses to talk about languages. 
You know, all the world knows this, and they reflect that in phrases that refer to music as the universal what? Music is the universal language. And it is obviously true that, communicate, that, that, that musical sounds, the communication of musical sounds is more limited than the specific concept words can communicate. Okay, musical sounds communicate more on the level of general moods. They, they do communicate an aura, a, a feeling of anxiety without identifying the specifics of, of the threat to well-being. <clears throat> I commented when we first got a, a CD player in a minivan and we're driving with the family and the, the video screen is right behind my head, which obviously the driver is supposed to be paying attention to other things. <clears throat> but everybody else is watching the video. <clears throat> I can't see that, but I'm listening to what everybody else is listening to. And there's times where they're all <clears throat> watching the video and, um, and a scene starts to develop and, and the music starts to sound like something dangerous is happening. There's a crisis being reached, but nobody's talking <clears throat> and, and, and I'm listening and still nobody's talking. And I start to say to everybody in the, in the van, hey, what's going on? And they're all riveted. I, I say, hey, hey, what's happening? What's happening? <clears throat> and they don't answer. And sometimes, you know, I pull the ultimate power play. Hit the off button. <laughs> and then they're like, what are you doing? I said, tell me what's happening. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> yeah. The, the music doesn't communicate the specific threat. Right? <clears throat> but it communicates in these general ways. But no one should think this means that the moods they communicate are not discernible. We know those, we know those moods. <clears throat> um, think about this, and I've done this in other settings, but when Johnny comes marching home again, okay, we know that that song comes out of the American Civil War, and, and it reflected joyful anticipation, the, the longing to see loved ones <clears throat> and friends return from the war. And you know, you can sing it uh, happily. With, sing it with me, okay? When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah. When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah. The men will cheer and the boys will shout. The ladies, they will all turn out and we'll all feel glad when Johnny comes marching home. Some of you only knew hurrah, hurrah, and after that, you didn't know the rest of it. <coughs> okay? He's coming home. We're glad and we're looking forward to it. Okay, but <clears throat> listen, and I'm sorry you have to, as a church, you usually don't have to listen to me sing very much, all right? But I'm going to change the mood. Same words. When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah. When Johnny comes Marching home again, hurrah, hurrah. <clears throat> we'll give him a hearty welcome then. And if it wasn't so funny to hear me sing, could you picture a mom singing that way? 
and start to cry before she can finish it? And if you knew the words, you'd think that the style is almost communicating something agonizingly opposite of those words. She was anticipating Chani was coming home, but now she's got the word that his life has ended on the battlefield and he's never coming home and we're never having the rejoicing hope for. And you can change it just like that because the different sound now is not a sound of celebration and joy, but it's a sound of grief and loss. Same words, but the sound changed the message. Verse 7 speaks of the need for instruments to give a distinctive, purposeful, orderly sound is the idea. Verse 8 refers to a trumpet's uncertain sound as not being helpful. And again, if you're noting anything there in your Bibles, uncertain is, is from a word meaning without distinction. It's used in Luke 11 and verse 44 to refer to an unmarked grave. Okay, the sound, if it's going to be understood and be helpful, has to have a, a definite purpose. It has to be sounded with precision and fulfillment of the purpose. Then much more we're going to look about picking up from here next week, Lord willing. <clears throat> but, but, but this is the concern about contemporary Christian music. And I'm not talking about new music. I'm talking about that as a genre. But, but the concern is about the mixed messages. U.S. News and World Report describes CCM as a form that weds Christian lyrics with pop styles from folk rock to heavy metal. So it's talking about blending these. But what is the stated philosophy? There's a philosophy behind that blending. And one CCM entertainer described her own music and performance by saying, I'm trying to be sexy in a godly way. The Bible says abstain from all appearance of evil. Time magazine described the well-known popular CCM singer by, by these descriptions, sensual and insinuating, with a hoarse shrug of pleasure, she pumps lust into the arrangements. But the Bible says, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. <clears throat> Years ago, when one of the groups that's popular now, and, and quite frankly, it's been sung, it's being sung in churches all over the upstate. It's being sung in Christian institutions all over the place. <clears throat> it came out when my kids were younger. I wanted them to understand some things. I found some samples and clips. If I name the name of the lady that was singing, everyone in here knows it. Everyone does. Then I played it to my family and family devotions. And when I was done, I said, what do you guys think? Hannah said, I think of a bad woman doing ucky stuff. And I said, what? What even makes... I, I said, where would you get that connection? And she's like, well, like on commercials before you guys turn them off when you're watching a ball game. She heard somebody singing about Jesus and that lady's songs are being sung all over the place. 
But when she heard it without context, said, I think of a bad woman doing Aki stuff. Amy Grant is recognized as one of the first big names to put CCM on the map back in as much as 1985 or so. <clears throat> and she said, again, the philosophy from the beginning was they aimed to bridge the gap between Christian and pop. But the Bible says that a faithful spiritual leader's responsibility is actually to teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean, Ezekiel 44. And when leaders don't do that, an entire generation, an entire nation paid the price of God's judgment. The only way a defense can be offered for CCM is to try to say that the music, the whole package, is neutral. It's an all-moral vehicle. One quote from a CCM proponent said, Music is not good or evil because of the formation of the notes or the structure of the beat. Music is good because the heart of the person playing it is innocently and sincerely praising God. That is the only argument that can be given. But with that argument given... The bottom line is no style is off limits as long as a sincere heart with a good purpose uses it. Brother, I come back as a close tonight to just say this. <clears throat> Nobody that is an authority in any field of music ever made that kind of remark until the end of the last century. And do you know that nobody in any other field is proclaiming it now? Again, rock musicians don't claim that belief years ago and this is going back a ways but cheetah magazine a rock magazine said if people knew i'm quoting they knew what today's pop music was saying not what the words are saying but what the music itself is saying they would ban it smash all the records and arrest anyone who tried to play it James Shute is a professional music critic for the Milwaukee Journal down the road from where we lived and ministered. And to the best of my knowledge, I've tried to learn more about him, but he's, to the best of my knowledge, he's not a believer and had no agenda, religious agenda, when he evaluated CCM. But he wrote this. He said, let's not quibble. The music's message is clear. Adding the words Jesus Christ to the lyrics does not make one bit of difference. The music inevitably overwhelms the best intentions of the lyrics. Now, I have dozens of quotes in my files from philosophers like Plato and psychiatrists and medical doctors and musicians of various styles, award-winning movie producers, preachers from four or five hundred years ago. They all say the same thing. All music communicates a message. A famous secular music camp, the state of Michigan, has written in large letters over the entrance to its auditorium, the words I've already mentioned tonight, <clears throat> but they have written music, the universal language. Now, brethren, music is a form of communication. That's clear from here. It has so much power for good, but also for hurt. And God intends for it to be used in worship. And all of that demands discernment. 
All of that calls for discernment. Look at Philippians 1. And we'll start in verse 9. And this is what Paul was praying for. For the Philippian church, I continue to pray for God's help for myself, my children, and for our church. Here's, here's a prayer that ought to be on the hearts of each of us today, and yet I feel like so many things are almost militating against it. Notice in verse 9, in this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And I'll just say this. What, what two words there often are proposed to be in contradiction to each other? I pray that your love grows in knowledge and in... It's almost like <clears throat> judgment and knowledge are against each other. No, no, Paul is actually saying, I'm praying for you that your love for God, others, would grow to the place that you're willing to, to get the knowledge that is needed, the knowledge in the scripture, the knowledge about the thing under discussion. In this case, music. How does it communicate what it does? And that, you would, that, that your love would grow to the place that you get that knowledge with a sensitivity Practice discernment so that, verse 10, that ye may approve things that are what? Okay, it's not spelled out in black and white, so I get to do it. That's not loving and it's not maturity. That ye may approve things that are excellent and have an impact on you, that ye may be sincere but have an impact on others without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto, back to where we started, unto what? Unto the glory and praise of God. So this isn't just about, don't tell me what I can listen to. That's my music. This is about a love that grows to say, Lord, what would you have? Put in the effort to get the knowledge and, and have sensitivity that makes judgment calls approving things excellent. I do consider the impact of that on my own inner man, but I consider the impact of that on others that I'm ministering to. And God, I want it to be about what truly glorifies you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to give you an opportunity to just communicate with the Lord maybe just this same prayer tonight or maybe there's something more specific but just to say Lord in light of the fact that you've created music and the devil is thought to pervert it in light of the fact that it has such an impact on the inner man and in light of the fact it has such an impact on corporate worship and it's part of the whole communication thing Lord I want to 
I, I just want to take a new, fresh look at what you would have for me in this matter of music. And I, I, I don't want to stand up and say, I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but Lord, help me to grow in love and maturity.